evolution is not just a description of how we got here. David Sloan Wilson says it can also be a roadmap, a toolkit for elevating how we live together and shape our future. He's an evolutionary biologist and an atheist who admires what religions do right in human societies. And he's applying his knowledge to urban renewal in an American city. He has fascinating insight into why people behave in disorderly ways when they're in a disorderly place. But he also explains why living in a wealthy neighborhood can make you a less caring person. And he tells us about a successful experiment in school reform that doesn't begin with curricula or student self-esteem. It starts with what we know about environments that help human beings behave pro-socially, at their best and for the good of the whole. It's very much for me a matter of managing the cultural evolutionary process in order to basically stack the deck in favor of prosociality. How can we make it so that prosociality wins the Darwinian contest? How can you get a population of 50,000 people to function adaptively? That's quite the challenge, and not many cities do it well. Evolving a city. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. I spoke with David Sloan Wilson in 2012. He is Sunni Distinguished Professor of Biology and Anthropology at Binghamton University in upstate New York. He first came to the attention of many with his book Darwin's Cathedral, where he analyzed religions as laudable examples of human group behavior. This inspired him to wonder how evolutionary biology might apply what it knows to real-world, real-time problems. He describes where that question took him in his book called The Neighborhood Project, Using Evolution to Improve My City One Block at a Time. Here's how David Sloan Wilson reflects on his formation as a human being and a scientist in those pages. I am a scientist who began my life as the son of a novelist. My father, Sloan Wilson, was certainly known in his own place and time with novels such as The Man in the Gray Flannel Suit that were said to define his generation. I did experience a torrent of words from my father as he tried to make sense of the world around him. For me, science is a medium for listening and reflecting on the human condition, much like religion and literature. I would like to start, uh, I've deciphered what I can from your writing about your upbringing. I, I wonder, was there any kind of religious or, or spiritual background to your childhood? My parents were not religious. We come from a, a Protestant uh, tradition, but my father was a skeptic, and he disparaged religion for the most part. And my mom was would call herself agnostic. I seldom saw the inside of a church. Uh, my dad loved to ridicule the more hypocritical aspects of religion. And yet at the same time, uh, both were extremely moral people. So if you think of what we associate with Christianity and the desire to uh, do unto others, basically, that was uh, very strong in my family. And uh, you can see it in my father's book is that his characters are very intent on doing the right thing, even right. though they often fail. So as a graduate student in the 1970s, you thought you were going to specialize in the study of zooplankton, right? <laughs> but then you discovered evolutionary biology? Yeah, that's right. Um, that's what's so interesting is that evolution is this passport to the study of all subjects. And you learn that when you're a student in biology. I learned it uh, as an undergraduate, but even more as a graduate student, that I could study any species 
any aspect of any species with this powerful toolkit. Hmm. And the thought that you could then enlarge that to study all aspects of the human condition was just intoxicating. So um, from the very beginning, I was uh, attracted to evolution for those two reasons. You have this wonderful uh, line. You, you talk about glimpsing the full scale of, of evolutionary theory is like reading a great novel that everybody resonates. And you compare the initial stages of scientific insight to a Woody Allen movie, a good experiment <laughs> to a well-executed chess game, and the effort involved to building the Great Wall of China. <laughs> right. That's uh, that's my attempt to um, step into my father's shoes as a storyteller. <laughs> okay. And I also think it's important to just, you know, spell out that when you talk about evolution, um, you're, you're talking about evolution both genetically and culturally, right? You're talking about the sweep of our experience and our being. Totally. And, and it's interesting that, uh, that that idea that there's more to evolution than genetic evolution is something that we need to establish at the beginning of our conversation. But it's something also that's, that needs to be established among the professionals. Uh, what happened in the history of evolution was that in the first place, Darwin knew nothing about genes. Um, right. Darwin knew about That's Darwin a very important heredity. point to remember, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh-huh. But then uh, evolution became very gene-centric when uh-huh. we did learn about genes, so much that now most of my colleagues actually, at least many of them, uh, when you say evolution, they think genes. Yeah. Yet evolution operates in many different contexts. Whenever there's a mechanism of inheritance, and that mechanism can be cultural in addition to genetic. Now, in your book, Darwin's Cathedral, you actually focused on religion as um, an organism, religions as a groups and as adaptive groups. Now, how did you gravitate towards that subject in particular, which I suppose was probably kind of counterintuitive maybe to some of your colleagues? Well, my career as a biologist has been centered on the question of how groups can evolve to function as adaptive units, so not humans and, and uh, not religion, but any group, social mm-hmm. insects or uh, any social uh, uh, creature. That's a fundamental problem, in, uh, and maybe I can just outline the, the problem, which, yeah. is that, uh, which is that when we contemplate groups functioning well as groups, that involves individuals doing things for each other. And those behaviors, call them solid citizen behaviors or pro-social behaviors, are inherently vulnerable. Right. Uh, what it takes to be a solid citizen is just plain different than what it takes to be someone who maximizes your slice of the pie. And so we're faced with a puzzle or paradox. And I became attracted to that problem as a graduate student. And it's been my um, main theme ever since. I was uh, all set up basically to study uh, those questions in human social groups and uh, religion in particular. So you've said that evolutionary theory can um, help explain why religion can look terrible and uh, wonderful at the same time, why it can have both of these faces in the world. Well, absolutely. And uh, I think the most important thing to say about approaching religion from an evolutionary perspective is that you can take the entire toolkit that is used in biology and apply it almost without change to the study of religion. I think that there's a growing consensus among my colleagues that for the most part, most enduring religions are impressively good at creating communities of people 
that function well as groups. And that's why it's, it's possible for an atheist such as myself to be, in a sense, awestruck and inspired by religion because it is so good at forming groups of people into cooperative uh, units. I want to know how it works, even though I'm an atheist, because I would like other meaning systems to work that well, secular meaning systems to work that well. I have a commitment to be a scientist, so therefore um, I subscribe to methodological naturalism, but I admire religions for the positive that they do. And of course, uh, it's part of the whole theory that I'm also aware that there's a dark side to religion. In fact, several dark sides, as there is with all functional groups. Right. But, Composed uh, of human beings or, or other uh, creatures, absolutely. I suppose. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one thing I thought that was interesting for you to discuss as an evolutionary, from an evolutionary perspective, something that people talk about, but it comes into focus in a different way, I think, is this fact that their religious communities um, have transcendent teachings, right? But also pay close attention to basic human needs and, uh, and just creating structure and order. Um, I mean, you, you went back and looked at the way people wrote about the early Christian churches, which were such socially transformative institutions. And, you know, what people saw then was how they loved each other, how they took care of each other. And you also cite the water temple system of Bali um, as another example of this. Right. So uh, one of the things that amazes me about religion is that it combines the sublime and the mundane. And this is one reason why we're studying religion in the city of Binghamton, New York. In other words, as practiced in a real-world population, it makes a positive difference in the lives of real people in the context of their everyday lives uh, in order to be sustained. And yet at the same time, there is something philosophically profound and sublime about religions. I'd like evolution, for example, to be sublime and mundane. <laughs> and uh, at the moment, uh, although evolution has many applications within the biological sciences, uh, it is not applied to improve the quality of our lives in most human contexts. And until it can succeed at improving the quality of life in a mundane sense, uh, then it is, it is not performing as well as a religion. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with evolutionary biologist David Sloan Wilson. He's a professor at the State University of New York in Binghamton, and in that city, he's begun an experiment to apply the insights of evolutionary biology to the good of a real post-industrial human place. In his book, The Neighborhood Project, David Sloan Wilson observes Binghamton's architecture, institutions, and economy like fossil layers in terms of evolutionary progression. He writes, for example, Binghamton's era of prosperity might have ended with the 19th century except for two men, George F. Johnson and John B. Watson. Johnson founded the Endicott Johnson Shoe Company. Watson built a small company that made time clocks into the international business machine corporation, IBM. Both took a paternal interest in their employees that stands in stark contrast to the Enrons of today, yet failed to serve their interests over the long term. (laughs) 
did you have a moment where you came to this realization about wanting to connect this science with life as lived? How, how did this come to you? Well, I, in the first place, I think many people have an impulse to uh, do good in one way or another, and that my impulse was actually quite meager <laughs> for most of my life. Yeah. Um, I was busy being a professor, and so I was uh, acting on that impulse when I started to study the city of Binghamton. I was also acting uh, still in scientific mode because when you're an evolutionist, you know, evolution is fundamentally about the relationship between organisms and their environments. You cannot understand the property of any species except in relation to the environment in which it evolved, not even its present environment, but the environment that's responsible for the evolution of all of those adaptations. And so as a field biologist studying beetles and fish and, and um, non-human species, I spent a lot of time in the field, and, and uh, everything I did in the lab was predicated on what mm. was known about them in the field. And yet uh, when studying humans, I realized that uh, the human-related sciences are not like that. And so one reason why I decided to study my city of Binghamton was to have a field site, right. just the way I did for fish and beetles. <laughs> and that, right. sounds kind of, that sounds kind of cold and objective, but no, it's extremely warm-hearted. So, I mean, at the same time that I was filling this, this badly needed niche that, uh, in a scientific sense, I was also satisfying my communitarian impulses, and I feel uh, very much enriched as a person from having done this. And it was interesting to me as you, um, when you start describing that project, there, there are all these pieces to it um, that kind of illustrate what an evolutionary biological approach gives you. I mean, so part of it is taking the past seriously, right? I mean, you, you tell the story of Binghamton, and, and I think you delved into the story of Binghamton in a way you hadn't before, this place you came from. But but again, you know, not necessarily the way we do it culturally, where I don't know, we tell our story as part of something we wear on our sleeve or we tell us that we talk about the past as important to know so we don't repeat mistakes. But I see you as you tell the story of Binghamton. It's more about, you know, no, this is this all makes up who we are, right? These are these layers upon which we're built. Do, do you know what I'm saying? It's, it's a slightly different approach. Well, I sure do. And in the first place, thank you for uh, putting it that way because that's exactly what I intended. Huh. And I'm glad that it was received in at least one reader. <laughs> but, uh, um, and I think that this very much is an evolutionary approach. Uh, uh, there's a famous uh, evolutionist called Nico Tinbergen, and he wrote a famous paper in which he, he said that there's uh, four questions that need to be answered for every trait. And one of those is the historical question. What is the history of its origin and spread? And so I actually took that question as part of my book, and I told the history, as you know, in a number of ways. Uh, first of all, the history of individuals, then the history of cultures, and even the history of genes. When you think of uh, the city of Binghamton as a population with a collection of genes yeah. that came from all around the world, and Binghamton's uh, is a surprisingly diverse city for upstate New York. If I pluck a person uh, from the city of Binghamton, that person's ancestors could have come literally from any place in the world. And so when I talk about a person, not only do I ask where they come from, my very first question is, where did your ancestors come from? Right. And when did they arrive in North America? And how did they wash up on the shores of Binghamton, New York? And it turns out that 
the genes <laughs> are important yeah. and the cultures are important. The reason we have you know Eastern European churches, you know Russian Orthodox churches, and and so on is based entirely on the the movement of people from these different places in the world, and they they brought their genes with them and they brought their cultures with them, and right. both are in evidence on the streets of Binghamton today. It's kind of like they're the fossil layers that, that Darwin <laughs> would have looked at. And then, um, and I, also it's one of these, it's kind of a microcosm of, of American history, right? I mean, there's a history of IBM in Binghamton, and there's a history of Joseph Smith in Binghamton. And I think you could find a lot of interesting echoes in this exercise in many, many communities. I do think of Binghamton as every city, every town. It, of course, it has its distinctive features. But I do myself think of Binghamton as uh, uh, emblematic human population. And one thing that I discovered when I um, researched the history of Binghamton was that just about every virtue and problem that you can find any place in the world, and that includes ethnic cleansing, by the way, mm. uh, which occurred just after the Revolutionary War. The Revolutionary Army was directed by uh, George Washington, the father of our country, to frankly ethnically cleanse this part of the country. And, he, mm. and Washington used the word terror in his directive. He said, you will not accept peace under any circumstances. The peace that we get will be by the terror that we inflict upon the natives. And so mm. what we deplore in other parts of the world uh, took place. And yet at the same time, when the pioneers uh, moved in after that episode, then there was this family-like love among families. And even even peace with the Indians was something which surprised me. And then it went on from there, basically, with um, IBM and and religious movements. So, so I think of Binghamton as like a little Shakespearean uh, <laughs> stage, just as Shakespeare's plays speak to the human condition. I think uh, the, the little city of Binghamton, New York, uh, speaks to the human uh, condition. That's what I mean by combining the mundane and the sublime. And I think you're also doing it with an eye to um, evolution as something which is always happening, is in continuing to happen, right? Again, I, yes. clearly that's in the theory of evolution, but it's not something that... Um, non-scientists, you know, are able to kind of keep present in their imaginations. There's indeed a strong association that evolution is a slow process. Uh, Darwin thought this also uh, for genetic evolution, that it took thousands of generations and that you could only um, study the product. You could not study the actual process of evolution because it was too slow. And uh, at least two things have happened to overturn that um, assumption. The first is the discovery that uh, genetic evolution is much faster than we thought. In fact, genetic evolution can take place in a single generation. And this was discovered or began to become uh, prominent for the study of non-human species so roughly around the 1970s, and it's accelerated since then. And so we know now that evolution, genetic evolution, operates on ecological timescales, and that we also know that this is true for our own species in addition to other species. In fact, there's pretty good evidence that genetic evolution is taking place faster now than ever before. Is it because of technology, the pace of technology, changing well, culture? Well, of course, you know, uh, evolution is rapid when there's a big mismatch between the uh, uh, environment and the current 
population. Oh. And we're always changing our environment so much that we're, that we're creating constant mismatch. The mismatch. <laughs> we're creating constant mismatch. Uh-huh. It's um, um, amazing discoveries that are taking place. All of this just for genetic evolution. Right. But then when we, when we begin to think about culture as an evolutionary process and also psychological change, individual psychological change as also an evolutionary process. So each and every one of us is an evolving system in its own right. And so these non-genetic evolutionary processes, of course, they're faster still. And so that's why we haven't escaped the orbit of evolution. We're experiencing evolution at warp speed. In his book, The Neighborhood Project, David Sloan Wilson writes, Change is not necessarily for the better. Just as it is wrong to equate evolution with slow, it is also wrong to equate it with progress. Evolution doesn't make everything nice. It results in the full spectrum of outcomes that we associate with good and evil, thriving and decay. With the right conditions, the world becomes a better place. With the wrong conditions, evolution takes us where we don't want to go. That is why we must learn to become wise managers of evolutionary processes. You can listen again and share this conversation with David Sloan Wilson through our website. There you can also find out how to subscribe to our podcast. That's onbeing.org. And like us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash onbeing. Follow us on Twitter, our handle at beingtweets. Coming up, the original and captivating lessons David Sloan Wilson and the city of Binghamton, New York have learned by taking on urban renewal, community building, and school reform in terms of managing the evolutionary process. I'm Krista Tippett. On Being continues in a moment. On Being is supported in part by the John Templeton Foundation. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with evolutionary biologist David Sloan Wilson. He believes evolution can be a force for social good like the best of religion. In fact, in his book, Darwin's Cathedral, he analyzed why religious groups survive and thrive in evolutionary terms. But as he's been telling us, he became frustrated with the way science studies human groups, unlike animal groups, in unnatural laboratory conditions, mostly using college students as subjects. And he helped create a project of urban renewal driven by a collaboration among the social scientists and the citizens of Binghamton, New York. They have mapped neighborhoods for levels of what David Sloan Wilson calls pro-social behavior. These maps chart the relative health of communities in terms of hills and valleys, which take predictable statistics into account, like crime rates, but also consider more unconventional data, like garage sales and Halloween activity. Of choosing that as a variable, David Sloan Wilson writes, Everyone remembers as a kid that some neighborhoods are better than others for trick-or-treating. 
From an adult perspective, decorating one's house, buying treats, and staying at home are an expression of interest in one's neighborhood. Best of all, we could count the kids, weigh the candy, score the decorations, and count the smashed pumpkins and toilet paper trees the day after. Some people find quantification distasteful, as if the true essence of something like Halloween can't be turned into numbers. On the contrary, in my quest to understand the nature of civic virtue, I was studying the wellspring from which Halloween and much else emerges. I want to spend the rest of the time we have really, really talking some more about the Binghamton Neighborhood Project. And I don't know, I might call your applied evolutionary biology. Um, Great. Let, you know, another person I identified with is, uh, is John Calvin. Yes. <laughs> and uh, who I learned when I wrote about when I wrote Darwin's Cathedral. And I actually identify very strongly with him because, after all, he tried to organize the city of Geneva. Yes. And I'm trying to organize the city of Binghamton. And I think that... that uh, it's very much for me a matter of managing the cultural evolutionary process, basically knowing what I do about evolution. How can we structure our social life in order to basically stack the deck in favor of mm-hmm. prosociality? How can we make it so that um, prosociality wins the Darwinian contest? And how can we cause a human population such as a city to function well at the scale that it must. Um, So Binghamton's a small city, merely actually a little less than 50,000 people. How can you get a population of 50,000 people to function adaptively? That's quite the challenge. And not many cities do it well. Right. And so what can we do and how can we use our evolutionary toolkit in order to cause a city to function well as a unit. And of course, that requires everything below the level of a city, the neighborhoods, the groups, the churches, the groups of all sorts, the schools, the businesses, all have to function well in order for the city to function well. And then there must be coordination among those groups. So you've said about the the Binghamton Neighborhood Project that it's become your anchor to reality. Um, I'd like to understand (laughs) that, and I'd also like to understand what it's taught you about evolution that maybe you didn't know before, that you now know differently. Well, when you're an academic, you know, they they call it an ivory tower for a reason. Um, You can have your theories and think your thoughts, and there'll be no corrective, basically. I mean, obviously, there's the corrective of empirical science, but uh, I could have spent my life talking about the evolution of cooperation and prosociality um, without ever knowing if it could work in the real world. And and uh, the Binghamton Neighborhood Project is my anchor to reality because I'm working with, with real people, real groups, and I tell you, it's humbling. <laughs> so, you know, they, they uh, it's just humbling. So, and I think that's a good thing, basically, to to um, it's the ultimate crucible for testing um, your your ideas. Again, this is another thing that you point out that just makes logical sense, but it's a thought that I hadn't quite conceptualized before. You know, you say cities decay like other organisms, and Binghamton, as you said before, is a place that's like many places and uh, has some of the same issues now that many American cities are struggling with, unemployment, um, an industrial base that's shifted, um, you say cities decay like other organisms and also that people take their cues from environments and that they behave in disorderly ways when they're in a disorderly environment. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and uh, there's a lot of science which is showing that um, our instincts for what we do are 
largely subconscious. So our conscious decisions about how to behave are the tip of an iceberg of um, decisions that take place below the surface of uh, consciousness. Let me describe an experiment, not my own, but one of the a wonderful experiment which involved a, a mailbox and a letter stuck halfway into a mailbox as if someone had tried to put it in and hadn't gone all the way in. And it's clear that this uh, envelope has a little bit of money in it. And so uh, the passers-by, the question is whether they do the right thing and and uh, put it into the mailbox or whether they do the wrong thing and and take it out. And, and the experimental manipulation was whether it was a a kind of a littered environment with uh, hmm. litter and graffiti and stuff like that, or whether it was a clean environment. And that difference made the difference in the behavior of the passerby. The very same person, depending upon the cues provided by the environment, hmm. would either be behave prosocially or not. And we've done experiments uh, where we show college students who don't know much about the city of Binghamton uh, photographs of the neighborhoods, and we ask them to rate the neighborhoods, and then we check that against the opinions of the actual neighbors, and there's a, a good correlation so that you can tell a lot from a photograph. Hmm. And then we actually have these college students play a cooperation game with someone from the neighborhood whose photograph they are viewing. And what we discover is, is that if it's a nice-looking neighborhood, then the college student is in a cooperative mood. And if it's not a nice-looking neighborhood, then the college student is in an uncooperative mood. And all of this takes place basically instantaneously. That's the degree to which we respond to our environment. And, of course, knowing that, there's much that you can do to improve human behavior right, just merely by changing the cues of the environment. And I guess that helps explain this other observation that really struck me, that children growing up in high and low-quality neighborhoods experience, as you said, different faces of human nature. And you're, you're saying yeah. that that's a way people are responding to the environment, all, uh, even subconsciously, not even realizing how they're presenting, comporting themselves. Well, and there's actually um, several aspects to that, and some of them are quite unexpected. So one aspect is is that if you live in a tough neighborhood, and especially if you have a tough persona, then that's automatically going to be mirrored back by the people. Before the first interaction, that's going to be mirrored back. So it's truly the case that someone standing in a tough neighborhood or with a tough persona is going to be experiencing a different human nature than someone standing in a good neighborhood hmm. or with a more friendly persona. They will see a different face of human nature. Something a little less expected is that what we found, and there's a lot of other uh, research to support it, is that where you find the most cooperative people is not in the most wealthy neighborhoods. But in the, the low-income neighborhoods where people actually have to cooperate in the context of their everyday lives. And so uh, in some of the more wealthy neighborhoods, because people have so much money, they don't need to cooperate. And so they don't. Right. <laughs> and, they, and they're not even in practice. So prosociality, basically, it's not all about money. Right. And also, you don't equate – you can have a high-quality neighborhood that – does not have a high median income, right? So so you don't necessarily equate those things. So I think somewhere you said the kids who are most cooperative tend to come from neighbors that are high in quality and low in median income. Uh, exactly right. Exactly right. And this is also true worldwide. One of the great messages here is that uh, these, this all of everything we've been talking about replicates at all social scale. So there is famous research that's been done on small-scale societies around the world 
I should say, different cultures around the world, seeing how cooperative they are. And what was discovered on a worldwide basis is that there's huge variation in cooperativity, and that variation can be explained basically by how cooperative these cultures are in the context of their everyday lives. And hmm. so a culture where people have to hunt whales, for example, and that's extremely cooperative, hmm. is going to cooperate much more than a culture in which uh, they just uh, families practice slash and burn a, uh, agriculture and don't really cooperate outside the context mm. of the uh, of the family, and so uh, we've discovered that the, all of that also happens among neighborhoods within the city of Binghamton. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with evolutionary biologist David Sloan Wilson. The Binghamton Neighborhood Project has resulted in a number of initiatives with evocative names like Empowering Neighborhoods and Restoring Outdoor Play, the Binghamton Urban Ecosystems Initiative, the Binghamton Religion and Spirituality Project, and the Design Your Own Park Competition. surprised you that you might not have guessed about a city as an organism? Well, oddly, I'm surprised that some of what we're doing is working. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because you're and a skeptical because, scientist? <laughs> well, with, when, you know, when you have a theory, um, it's always conjectural. Yeah. And to have your theory confirmed is a joy. I mean, there could be no greater pleasure for a scientist than to have your theory uh, confirmed when uh, the astronomers found that light indeed bended around the sun. That was a great confirmation of Einstein's theory of relativity. Uh, the confirmation of my theories are much more um, modest. And what that means is, is that we can confront a, a real-world situation such as a school program for at-risk students or a, or a disadvantaged neighborhood or um, these sorts of problems, and we could devise a solution, which is what everyone's trying to do. Mm -hmm. Basically, we're just bringing a different toolkit to the policy table. And in every other respect, we're like anyone else who's trying to make a difference, uh, trying to come up with new solutions. We want to sit at the table with our evolutionary toolkit. And if we can devise a plan, and for that plan to work is a, a huge thrill and a surprise in a sense. And I feel lucky to have had some uh, surprises. And, and to the point where it becomes intuitive and in retrospect, you look back and you say, well, of course this would work. Why hmm. wouldn't this work? <laughs> so give me an example. Give me an example of a, a situation to which you applied this evolutionary toolkit and you are pleased with the results. My favorite example is the one that's best documented because a part of this is that in order to do this well, you have to do state-of-the-art uh, assessment so that you have to be able to not only does it have to work, but you have to prove that it works in a sense. Mm -hmm. And that can be very difficult in a real-world setting. So our biggest success story is the Regents Academy, which is a program for at-risk high school students that I was asked to advise. And so this is a program for kids that are almost certainly going to uh, drop out of school uh, to get into the program, they had to have flunked at least three courses in their previous year. And we designed this program with the help of the principal and 
and teachers to, as I said earlier, to stack the deck in favor of prosociality. And uh, I won't try to. This is published research. I, I'll. Uh, so I won't go through all of the uh, of details, but uh, we created a very highly prosocial environment and a good learning environment. So what, is, what th- so what does that look like? So creating a highly prosocial environment. What is what are the, some of the components of that? Okay, we have been able to derive a list of design features that cause just about any group to function well, including a school group, and this is based. Uh, a lot on the work of Eleanor Ostrom, who won the Nobel Prize in economics in 2009. And her contribution was to show how groups of people attempting to manage their common uh, resources, uh, such as uh, farmers or fishermen or forestry, people managing forests, how they're capable of managing their affairs uh, pretty well, but only if certain conditions are uh, met. And those conditions are very conciliant with what we know from an evolutionary perspective about prosociality and, and cooperation. So I'm going to reel off yeah, yeah. Uh, eight design features, and then I'm going to add a couple of extra things to show you how we created a school program uh, that uh, works. Now, as I'm listing these ingredients, uh, ask yourself the question, how well does the typical school satisfy these ingredients embody these design features, especially from the perspective of of an at-risk student, okay? Okay. Okay. Ingredient number one, there has to be a strong group identity and a sense of purpose for the group. So a person has to think that they're a member of a group and that group has to be a purpose that's clear to um, everyone, okay? Mm -hmm. Uh, Number two, a proportional costs and benefits. It cannot be the case that some people do all the work and some people get all the benefits. There has to be some sense in which the benefits are scaled to what you do for the um, group, Hmm. okay? Number three, consensus decision-making. People hate being bossed around and told what to do, but they'll work hard to implement a consensus decision. And right there, ask yourself what the average at-risk kid thinks about Hmm. whether they're being consulted about what they do in uh, school. Number four, monitoring. Um, most people are cooperative, but some people will misbehave, and unless you can monitor that, then the group will not function well. Number five, graduated sanctions. If someone does misbehave, you don't bring the hammer down immediately. You hmm. correct them in a nice, friendly fashion, but you also must be prepared to escalate. Okay. Uh, number six, um, Confl- fast, fair conflict resolution. If there is a conflict, it must be uh, resolved quickly and in a manner that's regarded as fair by all parties. And number seven, local autonomy. In order for the group to do the previous things, they must have the ability to make their own decisions and to organize their group um, their way in order to make those decisions. And there's another thing. If you look at the average school program, not only are the students not allowed to alter the routine, but even the teachers are not allowed to right. Oh, right. Even when they know it's not, and the students are aware that the teachers are not allowed to alter their routine. <laughs> yeah. So, so, and number finally, number eight is uh, called polycentric governance. And when when groups are nested within larger groups, then there must be coordination among groups, which mirrors the same principles. Now, there's two more principles that we added to this school group. 
The first was um, a safe and secure environment. Fear is good for uh, helping you escape from the fearful situation over the short term. It's toxic over the long term. Mm -hmm. And so therefore, if you don't feel safe and secure, if you're not basically in a playful, relaxed mood, uh, you're not going to do the kind of learning that you need to do. And finally, um, for uh, learning in any species does not take place when all of the costs are in the present and all the benefits are in the future. Hmm. So if you tell someone uh, you'll get a good job if you slogged right. four years through school. Right. Or you'll get it, into college four years from now. Yeah. So there's a, yeah. a wonderful study by the psychologist uh, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, who's best known for his uh, work on flow, peak psychological experience. And in this study, um, he and his team followed a group of gifted high school students that were identified as gifted in the ninth grade followed them through their high school and asked how many of them remained gifted by the 12th grade. And what he discovered was only the kids that enjoyed what they were doing on a day-to-day -day basis fulfilled their talents. And so even mm -hmm. the gifted kids had to have this short-term reward for what they were doing in order to realize the long-term reward. And so if school isn't fun and something you want to go to on a day-to-day -day basis, then forget about it. Right. Now, having listed these ingredients and compared them to the average school experience, you can see how deficient many school environments are, especially from the perspective of an at-risk student. self-esteem or teacher-student ratio, right? You're starting your deliberation from such a different direction. That's a perceptive point on your part, uh, although those things enter in. So, yeah, for example, well, right. They'd be implied, but you're not starting there. You're, you're getting there through creating the environment to create those things. Right? Yeah, and, um, you know, th thank you for making that, that point. What it underscores is the fact that evolution is fundamentally about the relationship between the organism and the environment. The organism, including you and me, are fundamentally reflections hmm. of our environment. That sounds environmental, and, is, and, and it is, and yet you can make that statement more powerfully as an evolutionist than in any other way. As it turns out, in order to implement these things, um, it did need a pretty good student-teacher ratio, yeah. so that was important. And uh, lots of love was required for that safe and secure environment. So uh, these kids have had very tough lives. It breaks your heart to hear some of their uh, stories. And so one of the things they needed most was just old-fashioned TLC. Yeah, right. And that's what caused them to be unfearful and to become relaxed and playful in the school environment, despite the fact that the rest of their lives were uh, harsh. And so we set this, we created this environment, and uh, during its first year, it just worked spectacularly well. And I was, uh, I was surprised and delighted. Surprised even though it was what we intended, but uh, had to be one of the greatest thrills in my professional career. Hmm. You know, what you just said a minute ago about it, it ends up needing old-fashioned TLC. I mean, that's also something that 
runs through your reflection on this. You, you, one place you write, I don't claim to have a fix for every problem, but some solutions, such as breastfeeding and welcoming nature back into our cities, are no-brainers. When you view them from an evolutionary perspective, we merely need to do what is manifestly good for us. And, you know, I hear a lot of stories that resonate with that in my work. I mean, we took a trip to Detroit this year, and part of what people who are doing who are rebuilding lives and neighborhoods there is rediscovering things they'd forgotten, like growing your own food and knowing what you're eating. I just wonder, though, as, as an evolutionary, from an evolutionary perspective, this act of rediscovering what we used to know and forgot would look like a backward step from the outside. Oh, I wouldn't call it a backward step. So, there is such a thing as a backward step. Yeah. And, so what is it if it's not a backward step? Well, life is complex, and there's all kinds of ways that you can uh, simplify in the wrong way. Uh, it is not the case that we want to go back to nature in every respect. We don't mm-hmm. want to wear loincloths. Uh, uh, we like our modern medicine. That's not the point. Uh, there are some aspects of our minds that are sufficiently adapted to certain environments that if you remove the elements of those environments, then uh, we're not going to adapt. We will be permanently mm. stressed. So we do and things so, that stop evolution as progress and that we have to restore those environments to keep growing? Well, we create it, we inadvertently create environments that are like a fish out of water. Mm. So if you put a fish out of water, there it is on land, flopping around. It's going right. to die soon. Put it back in the water. That's not regressive. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah, that's really And so I think that what we do when we try to reassemble small groups, when we put nature back in what cities— you say? Recreating ancestral environments. Then this is basically putting the fish back in water. Huh. And, and uh, that's not regressive. So Yeah. So I once um, was with the, talking to um, he's a geneticist who is also an Anglican priest, so a, a scientist and also a, a religious person. He said that he sees the spirituality of a scientist as something like the spirituality of a mystic, which is always seeking to discern truth and to know what one can know and then always knowing that there's much more to discover. Um, I wonder how you from your life, your way of seeing the world, and your work as an evolutionary biologist, if, if you would think about, if you had to define the spirituality of a scientist, how you might describe that. Well, I agree with that person, and I actually enjoy thinking of science as like a religion hmm. that worships truth as its God. Hmm. And I think that there's two aspects of that. The one that the person you described focuses on is like an individual aspect uh, of being a scientist, uh, which is uh, like uh, spirituality. That, And we even call it the spirit of inquiry, right? Right, right. The spirit of inquiry. You know, the, the fact that we're impelled to use that word spirit in our everyday lives tells you that it's an important word and that it's referring to something tangible, as intangible as it might seem. But I think the other thing about science that... Warren's comparison with religion, is the sociological aspects, uh, the fact that uh, individuals are hopelessly biased, they cannot perceive the truth by themselves. Mm -hmm. Science is not Mm -hmm. just an individual activity. Uh, We expect our scientists, we exhort them uh, to uh, be as objective as they can, and a good scientist tries to do so very 
earnestly but still fails. And so therefore, there must be a social process that causes science to work to yeah. to be a truth-discovering process. And that's also similar to religions in which a person is basically does the right thing, not only because they want to, but also because they're in a system that locks them into it. Right. A good religion is bristling with social control mechanisms. <laughs> <laughs> right. right, and you're in, and science is too in its way. Huh? And science is bristling with social control mechanisms. We need those. Yeah. And so I think that we could make science stronger by stressing these comparisons with religions. Hmm. Then, of course, there's the crucial difference, which is that science worships truth as its God, factual truth of this God, and, and other religions do not. David Sloan Wilson is Sunni Distinguished Professor of Biology and Anthropology at Binghamton University in New York. He's also editor-in-chief of Evolution, This View of Life, an online magazine examining the relationship between evolutionary science and everyday life. David Sloan Wilson's books include Darwin's Cathedral and The Neighborhood Project, Using Evolution to Improve My City One Block at a Time. In the final chapter of that book, he concludes, In some respects, I'm like a plumber, here to fix our collective clogged drain with my evolutionary toolkit. But I'm also reflecting on the most profound issues that have ever been pondered by religious sages, philosophers, and storytellers throughout the ages. For evolutionary science, the best basic research is on people from all walks of life as they go about their daily lives, which is also the best applied research. Understanding and improving the human condition go hand in hand. You can listen to this show again or to my unedited interview with David Sloan Wilson on our website, onbeing.org. On Facebook, we're at facebook.com slash onbeing. On Twitter, follow our show at beingtweets. The best way to follow everything we do is through our weekly email newsletter. It's fast and easy. Click the newsletter link on any page at onbeing.org. On Being is produced on-air and online by Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, and Stephanie Bell. Our intern is Megan Bender. Trent Gillis is senior editor. Being is a Krista Tippett public production distributed by American Public Media and is supported by the Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide at FordFoundation.org. On Being is extending its reach throughout America with support from Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private foundation.